about some of the signs that will precede the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. In Mark chapter 13, we have already spoken of two of them. The first contained in verses 5 and 6, and the second contained in verses 7 and the first part of verse 8. And I told you that there were four of them that were contained in verses 5 to 13. And I believe that we really don't need to go through those first two again because they talk to us in verses 5 and 6 about false messiahs as one of the signs that will precede the return of Christ. And we spoke about that in detail last time. And secondly, we also saw that there were going to be fighting military, not only false messiahs, but fighting military. Jesus says that before the end comes, you will have wars and rumors of wars. He says, don't be frightened, verse 7. He says, those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. He says in verse 8, for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In other words, preceding the return of Christ will be wars and rumors of wars where nations will be fighting in their military against other nations, and whole kingdoms will be fighting militarily against other kingdoms. He says, this is what you should expect. And you remember that I said to you that several commentators, many exegetes, those who try to study and understand their Bibles, even as laymen, would tend to see these passages, many of them, primarily a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem that occurred about 35 or 40 years after Jesus uttered these sayings, around 70 A.D., and even those years preceding that very cataclysmic event. It was true that there were false messiahs. It was true that there would be would-be saviors. It was true that there were wars and rumors of wars and nations fighting against nations. It was true of all those times. But it seems to me that there are ways of looking at this passage that sees it as not only fulfilled there in 70 A.D., but also a future fulfillment. And we looked at many passages which see what appears to me to be a future fulfillment of these things. There's a third sign that Jesus says that will be coming, a sign that maybe would even be more of an important sign than even these because it appears as though it's coming directly from God Himself. We might call it thirdly, formidable mayhem. Formidable mayhem. False messiahs, fighting military, and formidable mayhem. Look at the latter part of verse 8. Verse eight. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Now I said to you that so many people have understood these passages in a way that is consistent with a view called preterism. That is a Latin word that simply means past. 
And there are people who would say about even this verse that there were indeed historically and verifiably earthquakes and famines in and around Jerusalem during these days. And they're right. There were. It's an amazing thing to be able to look at some of these predictions of Jesus and then to look in our history books, let alone the people that experienced them at that very point, and see how precisely these things were coming to pass. One of the Roman historians at, at the time, Tacitus, reports that during Claudius's reign, quote, houses were flattened by repeated earthquakes, and as terror spread, the weak were trampled to death by the panic-stricken, unquote. In other words, right around this time of the destruction of Jerusalem, there was indeed repeated earthquakes. Isn't that amazing? You say, well, it's not really that amazing. There are earthquakes all over the place. Yes, but in Jerusalem, right at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, and right in line with what Jesus is saying right here. I'd say that's pretty amazing. The commentator Ellicott said, perhaps no period in the world's history has ever been so marked by these convulsions as that which intervened between the crucifixion and the destruction of Jerusalem. It was an amazing time. And it was a time for the panic-stricken. Think about it. You were in this time and you heard Jesus' own words and he would say, look, there are going to be false messiahs in your midst. And then there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. There are going to be nations rising up against nations militarily and kingdoms against kingdoms. And you will also see a sign of the beginning of the end when you see earthquakes and there will be a famine. Look, you can't just make those things up. You can't fabricate those things. You can't engineer an earthquake. You can't engineer a famine in a, in a cataclysmic sense. And again, regarding famines, the preterist will see a, an instant fulfillment because of what is spoken of even in our own Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, and you'll see what I'm referring to. Acts chapter 11, verse 27. Was Jesus speaking about Jerusalem and this famine and destruction? Certainly. Acts eleven twenty seven. Now at this time, and this would have been right around the time of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. You see, it's, it's a time marker. It's telling us exactly when it happened. It happened in the reign of Claudius, and it's happening right at this time. Of course, the Christians of that time had to respond to those things, and so the disciples, many of them, determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And they did this, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. And you would have the preterist saying, see there? It's the fulfillment right in that 70 A.D. There's no reason to look at anything futuristically. It's happening right here. But my response to that is, are we limited to this? Are we limited to seeing only these things as occurring in 70 A.D.? I think not. 
There were earthquakes at this time. There were famines in these days, just as Jesus predicted. But he also said that there will be earthquakes and famines, and I believe that there will be yet again. You say, how so? Well, if you look in verse 25 of Mark 13, what do we read? It says, And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. That sounds to me like there might be an earthquake. And it sounds to me like that is talking more about just some local fulfillment, even though I'm sure in the world at that time they thought that it was cataclysmic and no doubt thought that it was the end of the world as they knew it. Wouldn't you? January 17th. 1994, 4.31 a.m., Northridge, California. I was there. I thought myself, could this be the end of the world? For anybody who's in an earthquake, you believe that that earthquake is cataclysmic. Believe you me, when you're sleeping as sound as I sleep, and when your wife wakes you up, and when you sit up in bed, and you're almost thrown out of that bed, you think it's cataclysmic. I remember John MacArthur telling me that the great earthquake of 1971, almost right in the same spot of the Northridge quake, actually did throw him out of bed when he was asleep. When I started to walk to where our kids were in the other room, I started walking uh, over some glass, and I realized that, that all of the glasses from the cupboards and all of the things that uh, were breakable had indeed broken, and they were all thrown in the middle of the floor. I ran into my television, which was on the other side of the room from where it had sat. I walked into the room of my children, surely thinking that the big bunk bed had fallen over. It was that cataclysmic. And I told all of the kiddies, grab a hold of Daddy's underwear <laughs> and walk with me into the other bedroom. We need to pray. And so we walked in the pitch dark, and all you could hear outside were the sounds of of alarms going off in cars and little voices in those alarm boxes saying, send away from the car. <laughs> it was amazing. It was just pitch dark. And then when you looked outside, all you could see were fires in the distance. Might you think at that point that this is cataclysmic? This may, in fact, be the end of the world? I'm sure that those people in 70 A.D. thought that. But believe me, it looks as though verse 25 says that they'll actually be shaking from heaven going on. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. I love what Luke 21:11 says. It's the parallel to this. It says there will be terrors, and notice this, great signs from heaven. Great signs from heaven. That seems much more global than local to me. It seems to suggest even a greater futuristic fulfillment. I think so. All one has to do is look at those passages. Admittedly, I think they're futuristic. That's why I take them that way. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. John receives this vision and he says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. That sounds a lot like verse 24. It's amazing. 
It's amazing the consistency of Scripture. And the stars of the sky, Revelation 6, 13, fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. You remember the earthquake that caused Crowley's Ridge over here in the eastern part of Arkansas? There was no ridge before. Now there's a huge ridge called Crowley's Ridge. An earthquake did that. Just think of every mountain being rolled up into the sea. That seems to me to be as cataclysmic as possible. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? I don't see that as local. Not at all. I see that as part and parcel of what's being referred to in verses 24 and following of Mark 13. You look at Revelation chapter 8, verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fires of the altar and threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Chapter 11, verse 13. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. In chapter 16, verse 18, And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. I don't think that was Jerusalem in 70 A.D. I don't think we've experienced that yet. I think that's still in the future. And I think that's going to signal the end. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Isn't that amazing? You look out to see the mountains, and they're gone. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Chapter 18, verse 8, For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. You know, doesn't the Bible speak of something like this, something that appears so global, something that appears so cataclysmic? I mean, does not your Bible in Romans chapter 8 speak of even the creation that's longing, that's groaning for redemption? For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. In other words, I believe preteristically, I believe that Jerusalem 70 A.D. had the earthquakes and the famines. I don't doubt that at all, but I think this is going beyond that. I certainly think verses 24 do and 25 do. I really do. I think it goes way beyond a destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. I think it's speaking of the end. I think it's speaking of that which 
Matthew records in Matthew 19:28 that talks about the regeneration of the Son of Man, the regeneration of the, the earth itself, the recreation of the new heavens and the, the new earth. That's what's going to happen. That's a formidable mayhem, I'll tell you. They'll not only be false messiahs and fighting military, but a formidable mayhem that's going to go beyond anything that the destruction of Jerusalem ever even thought about. You say, will there be earthquakes that will come yet future to us that will still be the signaling of the end, but not yet the end? Probably. Probably. I think that's what was going on in Northridge, California, January 17, 1994, 4.31 a.m., I think there'll be others. Just last week when I was preparing these messages, there was a huge earthquake in Japan. I opened up my Sunday paper early in the morning. And just as I was reading this passage again about earthquakes and famines, I opened up the page of my newspaper and it said, huge earthquake in Japan, many are dead. And you know what I said to myself? You know, that's just a foretaste. That's just the beginning of those birth pangs again. And that's just the signaling of the beginning of the end. And it's going to happen. You say, how long will it happen? I don't know. Only God knows. The angels don't even know. Even the Son of Man, when he was ministering on the earth, was not knowing the exact time. It's fixed by the Father. That's his time. It's going to be a formidable mayhem, folks. Are we ready? Are we ready for this time? You say, well, what kind of person do I need to be? Well, that's fourthly, you need to be a faithful man. A faithful man. False messiahs, fighting military, formidable mayhem, and fourthly, faithful men. Look at verses 9 to 13. But be on your guard, for they, were, they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. What do we see when we look at these verses? Well, I see in these five verses five things. Number one, we see men and women who will be persecuted. Look at verse 9. He says, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. You say, well, see, if you're a preterist, if you believe these things have passed, if you believe these things were fulfilled in Jerusalem 70 A.D., one of the things that you would say about that is, look, what it says, for they will deliver you to the courts. You, you disciples, that's who Jesus was referring to. I say there's no argument there. I agree with that. I believe that. But isn't it true that every time Paul told someone something, or John or Peter, when he said, you, 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 it was primarily a reference to them, but secondarily it also applies to us? Sure it does. And I say even much more so with regard to prophecy. Yes, it happened to these believers. This period of of A.D. 66 to 70, it was cataclysmic for them. There's no question about it. Can you imagine living in a time of great and intense persecution? We don't live that way in the United States of America, but they do in other places. Surely they do. They are regularly brought up before the courts. They're regularly brought up before governors and kings. They're regularly flogged. It's amazing how much is going on in our world 
in this regard. And it was true in A.D. 66, 67, 68, 69, 70, the period that is commonly called the Jewish Wars. This was regularly happening. Listen to what Tacitus says. Nero inflicted unheard of punishments on those who detested for their abominable crimes were vulgarly called Christians. In other words, just because you were called a Christian, they would, they would bring you right before the courts and they would, they would pulverize you and they would speak evil of you and they would speak vulgarly of you. They would say, are you a Christian? Yes. And then they would beat you, they would hit you, they would imprison you, they would flog you. One of the early church fathers, Orosius, says, Nero was the first at Rome to torture and inflict the penalty of death upon Christians, and he ordered them throughout all the provinces to be afflicted with like persecution. And in his attempt to wipe, wipe out the very name, the name Christianity, he killed the most blessed apostles of Christ, Peter and Paul. Yes, even they gave their lives for these things. But isn't it also true that even though these are merely the beginning of birth pangs, that there will ultimately be coming a day of persecution that will be like no other? I mean, it seems so obvious to me that you can see a picture like this and say this is a type of what happened there, or it was a fulfillment exactly of what happened there, and it will also have its ultimate fulfillment. I can just see that in these verses. I can see that, yes, it was true of those in 70 A.D., but it's also going to be true futuristically. I mean, don't those passages in Revelation that I read seem to speak of a futuristic persecution that will be catastrophic in such a global way? It won't be happening in just Asia Minor. It won't be happening just in Jerusalem and Judea. It won't be happening in those areas. It'll be happening all over the world. You say, yes, well, that's easy for you to see those passages, either this one or the ones in Revelation as future, because that's the way you look at it. It's easy for you to see that because you see them futuristically. I don't. I see them preteristically. I see them as past. That's okay. That's all right. We're just doing our best to understand these passages. It doesn't mean that uh, you're a Christian and I'm not. It doesn't mean I'm a Christian and you're not. It just means we're trying to understand these passages. I've been having wonderful dialogue through email and phone conversations and personal one-on-one -on -one with preterists and premillennialists alike. It's wonderful. I love it. You know why? Because we're trying to grapple with these verses. We're trying to understand them so that we can be as ready as we possibly can be. It's okay. It's a wonderful debate. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I joked a couple of weeks ago, often what we do is we say about people who are different from us, well, you know so-and-so. I mean, look at the education he has or hasn't received. Or look at where he's come from, or look at who his mentors are, or look at his personal character. And I made the joke about, you know, people being scoundrels and their breath stinks and all of that. That's what we do with people. We, we want to, if they don't line up with us, say, well, you're so different from me, then obviously that can't be what the text really means. No, that's not true. It's all right. We're just trying to grapple with these things. And my preterist friends, I see some of these things that you speak of, but I challenge you to see some of these things that I'm seeing futuristically. I can see a great deal of both here. I can see things that occurred then. I can read the history just like you do. I can line up these verses and say, I see that. That looks good. I agree with that. But I also see things futuristically. I look in some of these other passages, and I, and I can see these things, and I say, sure looks to me like these things are global as well. And, you know, I think there may be some converts out here. I think there may be some people who are saying, okay, maybe I can see that too. And maybe these things do come futuristically. 
And you know, one thing we want to do is we want to try to say, whether we're talking about our amillennial or postmillennial brethren, we want to be able to say about them that none of them are pigeonholed in one space and in one location with one view. It has some fluidity to it. I found out that there are some amillennialists who believe in much more of a future than I ever thought they would. And I, of course, joke with them and say, well, you're coming toward me all the time then. It's wonderful. For instance, there are some amillennialists who would see Romans 9, 10, and 11, where it talks about the Jews and there are, there's going to be a great ingathering of Jews. There are amillennialists who say, I believe that that's a future reality. So in some sense, they are future. There are even some of them that say, I, I could even see the possibility of a great tribulation as well, one that you're speaking of also. Uh, there are some who even try to posit this kind of thing. Well, if God isn't through with the Jews, as I assumed maybe in uh, the earlier part of my life that maybe he was in my interpretation of Scripture, maybe it's going to be not in a millennium, because I don't believe there is a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, but maybe in the eternal state. You know, there's some scholars out there today who are actually saying maybe God is going to give all of those promises that he once promises, uh, promised to the Jews, not just to the church, but maybe to the Jews as well, and maybe that's in the eternal state, and it's something that's not even given us in Scripture. Maybe that's true, because we're all just trying to come to grips with these passages. You look at those Old Testament passages, you look at Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you say to yourself, boy, it sure seems like there's a future ingathering of the Jews, and if there's a future ingathering of the Jews, then maybe that means that that ingathering will occur either directly before a great tribulation, or it may even be during the millennial period itself where these Jews are gathered together, they're in their land, God has promised them things, He's come through for them, His promises are inviolable, they're irrevocable, and it happens at a point in time. That's all right. We're just trying to come to a place of understanding these things, and this is good. And one of the things that leads me to believe that, again, some of these items in Mark 13 are futuristic are, for instance, things like verse 10. Look at it with me. Verse 10, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Do you see it there? Now, there would be preterists who would say, yes, I, I see that, but I interpret that word world there, oikomene, I, I, I really see that in the context of some other passages in which that word world is used, and it's limited. It's limited. It doesn't mean the whole wide world. It means the world in the perception of the person who was speaking about it. And it is true that there are certainly passages that say that. For instance, in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, you don't have to turn there, just listen. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Well, look. Even at that particular point, they didn't even know who was out there in the farthest reaches, but they knew the world as they knew it. And so this, this registration, this census, had to be taken in the whole world. We speak about that all the time. We speak euphemistically about the whole world. Now, we may not actually be referring to the entire world, man, woman, and child, without distinction when we say world, and that's true. Acts 11, Acts 24, it speaks of the world in this way. And so the preterist has a point. When it says the gospel must be first preached to the, to the nations or to the world, maybe it's referring to the world as they knew it. That's legitimate. That's a very legitimate interpretation. But it seems to me that it's speaking not just of that, but another kind of explanation, and that is ultimately that the gospel will, will pervade the entire earth. That's, I think, a more legitimate interpretation of this passage. It started in Jerusalem. 
it went to Judea, it goes through Samaria, and it reaches the uttermost part of the earth. And I believe it's still happening. I believe that verse 10 is a verse that's ongoing. It's continuing even to, the, to today. It could be another thousand years. It could be tomorrow. It could be today. We don't know. We don't know what the plan of God is. But we know this. He's commanded that the gospel be preached to the whole world. I like sometimes like Romans 11.25 talks about it. Until the Gentiles have come in. Until the time has been fulfilled. What does that mean? God's timing. God's plan. Whenever that plan is fulfilled and only God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit know that now and when that time comes, then the end comes. And that's why we don't know when that time is. No human being knows that. Not even created, holy, angelic beings know that. Only God knows that. That's like Paul said in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. We didn't know when Christ was going to come in His earthly ministry. We didn't know when He was going to be born in Bethlehem. The prophecies foretold it, but we didn't know it. But God knew it, and when the fullness of time came, it happened. Same thing's going to happen to the end. It's interesting when I read some of these commentators. Listen to what they say when they have to deal with passages like this. Verse 10 is hard. Verse 10 is a hard passage to grapple with, especially if you're a preterist. Listen to it. C.E.B. Cranfield says, great commentator, it is part of God's eschatological purpose that before the end all nations shall have the opportunity to accept the gospel. That's, a, that's an amazing statement by a preterist. It's an amazing statement. He, he tends to take this passage at its face value. D. Edmund Hebert, a futurist, says this. He says, The promise of a worldwide preaching of the gospel does not assure that there will be a worldwide acceptance of it. Notice this. A twofold fulfillment of this prediction seems evident. The preaching of the gospel throughout the Roman world is affirmed by Paul. It was proclaimed in all creation, Colossians 1.23. But Matthew 23.14 clearly refer, refers to a preaching which relates to the eschatological end. And even another preterist, William Lane, notice what he says. If it is proper to understand nations in the sense of the Roman world, this imperative was fulfilled at least in the representative sense by A.D. 60. Notice what he says, however, as a necessary preliminary of the end time, however, the fulfillment of the mandate continually points toward the manifestation of the Son of Man in glory at the consummation. You see? These honest men, all of them on all sides of the issue, you look at a verse like that and you say, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. How do I interpret that? Well, maybe I interpret that in a twofold fulfillment. It happened to Jerusalem. They had evangelized the world as they knew it. And yet God had a different plan. And so this gospel continues to be preached. More people are being born into the world. More people are out there. And so the gospel just continues to pervade the world. It's moving ever forward. And it's moving to what I believe is an eschatological consummation. You say, what's going to happen in this time? I mean, what happened in 70 A.D.? What's going to happen in the future? I mean, what kind of world is it going to be? Well, I'll tell you, it's going to be a rough world. So rough, in fact, verse 11 says this. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's going to be so rough. It's going to be so tough 
Persecution is going to be so bad that when you are hauled into the courts to give an account for Jesus Christ, you're going to need supernatural ability. That's how rough it's going to be. You say, what do you mean by that? Notice what it says. Don't worry beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. It's a passive. It's, it's talking about something that you don't have in and of yourself, something that's given to you, and what is given to you? Words. Words. To defend yourself. And it's going to be a supernatural revelation of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting that either if you took it in the past, in 70 AD, or in the future, it's still both supernatural revelation. Why? Because before this time, in 70 AD, the canon had not yet closed. John the uh, Apostle in the Apocalypse, writing probably somewhere around 90 AD, the canon of Scripture had not yet closed. It would be 20 years more before the Revelation would be written. And so therefore, when people were hauled into courts, they wouldn't know the full, complete canon as you and I have it. They wouldn't know how to defend themselves in totality. And so Jesus is saying, don't worry about it. When you go in and when you are called to give an account... You don't even have to prepare for these things. The Holy Spirit is going to supernaturally give you those words. Isn't that amazing? Amazing the support and the encouragement that you'd receive from God Himself. And in Luke's Gospel, it's amazing. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit will give you the words. Jesus said, I will give you the utterances and the wisdom you need. You have the whole Trinity working on your behalf. It's amazing. And even in the future time, you say, well, the canon is closed then. Well, God also says in that very canon, in the book of Revelation, that there will be such intense persecution that this is a promise for that time as well. You'll have the words even at that time. Don't worry about it. Don't be so anxious. And wouldn't that be the response of so many people? Anxiousness, worry, fear, panic, cataclysmic things happening, earthquakes, wars, rumors of war, people killing each other. People hauled into judicial branches of governments all around the world being asked to give an account. Are you a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? How can you say you're a Christian? What about your family? And Jesus says, don't worry about it. You'll be given these things. It will be supernaturally revealed to you. I love what Luke records. Jesus said he would give the utterance and the wisdom, quote, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Oh, that's so good. You don't have to worry about these things. Look, if we're going to go through this time, and I don't know if we are, I hope we won't, but if we go, go through those times, you don't have to worry about these things. Jesus is our protector. He'll give us the words. Words so grand and glorious that they won't be able to resist or refute. And then the betrayal of families, verse 12. And this is probably the most tragic of all, isn't it? I mean, the most tragic of all, persecution will happen even in the family. Brother will betray brother to death, a father is child, children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Isn't that incredible? I mean, families will turn against each other, probably for the, the saving of their own skin. Are you a Christian? No. No. Is your mother, brother, sister? Yes. We're going to kill you unless you tell us the truth. Yes, yes they are. I'm going to save myself, even at the expense of my own family. That's hideous, isn't it? You say, I would never do that. You've never been in this kind of persecution. You've never been in this kind of testing. You say, well, 
What's it going to look like in that time? What's going to happen in this world? I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is exactly what is going to happen. But realize this, chapter 3, verse 1, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving. You notice some of the things in there? There's one in chapter 3, verse 1. You can't really see it that clearly in the English text, unloving. It's the idea of the loss of natural affection. You don't have any affection anymore for your own family. It's, it's, the, it's the reversal of everything we hold dear, that you'd give your life for your son, your daughter, your, your wife, your husband. You'd give your very life for these things, and yet this persecution is going to be so intense, and so many people's love is going to wax so cold. It's going to wane to such a degree that you're going to turn in your own family members, some of you. That's what he says. And he's, he's talking to the disciples when he says it. This, this, is, this is what's going to happen. Be on your guard. This is what's going to happen in the world. It's, uh, it's that word that Paul uses there in 2 Timothy 3, ah, storge. Storge is the word for family love, and when you put the little alpha privative on the front of it, it negates the word, the lack of family love. Brother's going to betray brother, fathers, children, and have them put to death. And notice it says it twice there. To death. To death. It's just incredible. And then lastly, verse 13, the faithful men are the ones who will endure to the end. You say, is that what's going to happen to everybody? No. No. God always, listen to this, God always has a faithful remnant. There are going to be some people who are going to respond to these things and they're going to buckle under the pressure and it's because they never knew Christ in the first place. They never loved Him with an everlasting love for Christ gives that kind of love. And there are going to be people who are going to respond with what appears to be an initial love just like they no doubt did in Jerusalem. There were probably multitudes of people that would say, you know, I'm going to follow this new sect called Christianity. It looks good to me. You remember Simon Magus there in Acts 8? He wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. He did all kind of magic tricks, and I'm sure that there were followers galore of, these, of this man and, and these tricks, and I'm sure that so many of them were saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. And then the destruction of Jerusalem comes in 70 A.D. Are you so easily now saying you're a Christian? If someone puts a knife to your neck, are you now saying I'm a Christian? Or might you say, no. You know, I followed it for a while, but you know, I like some of those Roman deities. Now, I'm interested in them now. Yeah, you know, I never really liked those Christians in the first place. And it could be in the end as well, when people are lovers of self, when they're ah, storge, when they're lacking natural affection, when they're not responding to even in their own family, do you think if they're not going to respond to their own family, they're going to help you or me? No. And it is true. You look at Acts 8, chapter 8, verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 2, Hebrews 10, 1 John 2, it all talks about the fact that there were people at that time who were leaving in droves Christendom. Not Christianity, Christendom. See, even then, there were people who were on the fringes. I mean, they came to church, they gave their money, they read their Bibles, they walked the aisle. I mean, it's all true, and it's true of every age, and it's going to be true ultimately with all of these people as well who are going to say, yes, I'm in, but when persecution hits, what's going to happen? They fall away. 
1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they didn't really know us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? Remained with us. But they went out in order that it may, it may be made manifest that they were not really of us. That's what's going to happen. And it's going to happen in such a cataclysmic way. You know, the battle lines are going to be drawn. Black is going to be black and white is going to be white. And that's the way it's going to be. And people are going to say, I'm in even to the death. And I'm going to protect my family even to the death. And there are going to be people who are out, and they're going to say, you know, it was my brother, it was my mother, it was my sister, it was my wife. They're all against me. They've, they've falsely accused me of being a Christian. It's not true. It's not true. All the while just trying to save themselves. It's an amazing time, isn't it? I want you to turn with me as we close to Matthew 25. As we close our time, I want, you to, I want you to look at what we're really talking about here. This is the same Olivet Discourse. It's the same as Mark 13, just expanded. Matthew records different details. It's, it's the same, but with an expansion in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 25 there's a parable about the talents. And there's a story of Jesus in this prophetic proclamation of the judgment. And in verse 31 it says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. In other words, when the, when the true judge, when the real judge, when the judge who sees transparently, not on the externals, but goes right into the issues of the heart, He's going to see who's the true sheep and who are the true goats. The sheep are the real, the goats are the false. And He'll put His sheep on the right and... He'll put the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you, thirsty, and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. You know what the point is? The point is you'll be known by your fruit. You'll be known by the godliness and the righteousness of your life. You'll be known by your service. You'll be known by your ministry. You'll be known by who you reach out to. It'll, it'll mark, even in the smallest ways, the people who are truly the righteous, the people who ministered to the little people, the people who reached out to the unfortunate, to the tragic, to the deformed, to the despised, to, the, to those in prison, to those who were thirsty and needed a drink, to those who needed clothing. And the true are blessed. And what about the unrighteous? Verse 41, he'll also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will answer, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry, thirsty, or a stranger, naked, sick, in prison, and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it, 
to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see the point? The point is all of us must be ready. We must be doing the deeds that speak of our Christianity. We must be involved in the kingdom work because it really shows where our hearts are located, kingdom hearts. And those who are saying, well, I, I'm a Christian, sure I am. I, I do all kinds of things. I, I give money and I go to church and I read my Bible and I, I do all kinds of things. But inwardly, they're only doing those things because it means they want something from it. They're not just giving it from a heart to serve Christ, to be, as Gary Ade said, just, just a part of God's work, an undeserving. We know what we deserve. And yet God is blessing us because He's giving us eternal life. He's giving us what we know we don't deserve. All of those things are true. And yet there'll be people in the last days when the persecution comes, when the wars and rumors of wars, the earthquakes, the famines, when it all happens, and I believe it will eschatologically, futuristically, and when it happens, there are going to be people who are going to say, boy, not for me, not for me. No, sir. No, sir. It's the people that we might say are on the path of least resistance. And it's a sad thing for them because Jesus looks at their hearts and he says, you did not even do it to one of the least of these, my brethren. And that's the frightening words of Scripture, you accursed ones, go out of my sight. What do we do? What do we say? How do we respond to a message like this? It's, it's, it's really simple at its heart. Where am I spiritually? Where's my heart? Do I know Christ? Am I serving those, even the least of my brethren? Not for the purpose of being called righteous, but knowing we're undeserved and unrighteous, Jesus comes to us, gives us a new heart. We're implanted with that heart in order to serve, and we serve out of gratitude. And when that happens, the gravy on top, the icing on the, on the cake is this, enter into the joy of your Lord. You did these things, and you didn't even know what you were doing half the time. You didn't even know who you were ministering to. Just like the, the writer to Hebrews talks about ministering to angels unaware. You didn't even know what you were doing most of the time. You just ministered and served and reached out to people, and what happened was you were doing kingdom work, even if you were not fully aware of it. Enter into the joy of your Lord. No kudos, just thanks and praise to God, glory to God. He's given us not what we deserve, we deserve hell. He's given us what we don't deserve. It's blessing, it's glory, it's righteousness, it's the kingdom. And all the while we're just serving because we're serving out of gratitude, thankfulness to God. Amen? Praise God. You and I can talk about the interpretation of passages. We can spend a lot of time and effort. The ultimate reality is this. Who am I serving? Am I ready for the coming of Jesus Christ to the earth? Am I serving kingdom purposes for kingdom glory? That is the glory of the King. Every small task, every little child that you minister to this week, every little person in your life, every big person and everybody in between, it's an opportunity to minister for Jesus Christ. He said he was there. You say, well, where was he? He was right there because when you minister to these, you minister to me. Bow your heads with me. Our Father, oh, what a challenge. Lord, as we grapple through these texts, may we see them in a way that is not only the 
the desire of our hearts to interpret them accurately for your sake and for the sake of this people, but also, Lord, for the sake of kingdom ministry. Lord, please allow us not only to work hard at interpreting, but living out what we believe these interpretive issues really are. Service, ministry, kindness, blessing. Lord, we want to do that. We want to respond. And even though in the end we could stand before you and we could find out that our interpretation was error-prone, and certainly it shall be to some degree, but you, Father, you're the one who is showing us right now, through your word, that this is what we're to be. We're to be faithful, we're to be servants, we're to be ministers of your new covenant. May we do that for your glory, for your honor, for the sake of your name. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.